Hello and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today I am sitting down with a Food Network host that you all know and love, and he gives a lot of tough love. I'm talking about Robert Irvine, and I'm so excited to talk to him because I, I vividly remember, you know, my dad coming to visit and um, watching a, I think it was a Restaurant Impossible marathon on Food Network, and my dad was so enthralled by it and so um, invested in these people's stories. So it's a really nice memory for me. I did meet Robert briefly at, at a food festival very many years ago. He would definitely not remember, but I can tell you that his arms are even bigger than they look on television in person. Um, So I'm excited to talk to him about his fitness regimen as well. But before I get to my chat with Robert, I want to talk to you guys about um, five foods that I'm really obsessed with right now. I don't know if anybody else does that. Maybe it's just me. Um, I go through these phases where I just get completely obsessed with like certain foods or certain ingredients. And usually um, I I stock up on whatever that thing is right before I get over it. (laughs) And then I end up with like a bunch of one thing. I, I feel like I do that with like canned tuna. Um, but uh, I'm going to share with you guys my my list right now. Obviously, it, it will change over the next uh, few weeks and months. So maybe we can revisit this as well. And I would love to hear if you guys are obsessed with any of the same things or perhaps um, just different things that you guys are obsessed with right now. Of course, you can always use the hashtag Food Network Obsessed and tag Food Network, tag me so I can see it. Um, I love to have these conversations and repost them in my story or on Twitter as well. All right. So my five things that I'm super obsessed with right now. Number one is fish sauce. I think it, it adds such a unique flavor, this uh, this umami that you really can't get from anything else. So obviously, I use it in all the traditional um, Asian dishes that would call for it. But I also like using it in kind of unexpected ways. Um, I make a, a, a homemade Caesar dressing sometimes, and then I'll use that instead of anchovies. Um, and mostly because I generally don't have anchovies on hand. Um, and I think the fish sauce kind of mimics that, but also doesn't have quite um, the punch that that the anchovies have, which I like. I mean, some people would disagree with me on that. I also used it for a salsa verde, uh, which traditionally calls for anchovies as well. So things like that. Um, I love using that. And it just kind of adds like a unique flavor that, that you really can't get anywhere else. Um, along those same lines, I love Kewpie mayo. Um, if you've never had it, it's like a Japanese mayo. Um, I find it at um, Japanese markets. Um, I've also seen it other places as well. But it's it's just slightly different than regular mayonnaise. I like it better. Um, and I use it in things like tuna salad, my deviled eggs. I mean, honestly, anything that would call for mayonnaise, um, I would just sub that out. Cupy for life. A really random thing that I'm obsessed with right now is microgreens. And I just thought they were so beautiful in the sandwich that I made. And then I just started putting them on everything, like threw them in some salads and use them as a garnish on um, some poached fish. I don't know. They, they add like a nice little um, flavor and also like a, a little pop of color. So I'm all about them. Another thing that I'm obsessed with right now is Daryl Lee licorice. Not exactly sure if I'm saying it right. It's an Australian licorice. So all my Aussie fans out there, if I, let me know 
if I said it right. But um, apparently there's a bunch of different brands of Australian licorice. I, d- I didn't know this until recently. This is the one that we've kind of honed in on. And now we we order them from Amazon. The ones we get have like, I think it's strawberry, mango and green apple. I don't know. They're just really good. And I love them. Um, and then the last thing is Calabrian chilies. This is one that I've been obsessed with for a while. So I don't think this one is going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, it's probably due to the fact that I've been um, listening and hanging out with Bobby Flay for, for too many years. Uh, just kidding. Love you, Bobby. Uh, but I do love them. I, I can understand why he puts them in everything. They're, they're delicious. They add some really nice spice and, and flavor. So... Uh, those are my five things. Let me know if you guys have similar or different ones. And uh, speaking of Bobby Flay and collaborating chilies, um, I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch last night's episode, a brand new episode of Be Bobby Flay featuring uh, yours truly as one of the guest co-hosts, along with uh, Michael Voltaggio. And it was so much fun. We actually taped that episode back in fall of 2019. So they have a lot of episodes um, ready to go that have been recorded uh, quite a while ago. So it was kind of fun to take that that trip down memory lane and, and remember that episode and always have so much fun uh, on that show. Always thankful to uh, Bobby and Rock Shrimp for having me on. So I'm not going to do any spoilers. Um, I know maybe people haven't had a chance to catch up and watch it, but would love to hear what you think about that episode. Uh, but in the meantime, let's get to today's episode on the podcast. We have a world-class chef, entrepreneur, and hands down the most muscular person on Food Network. You know him best as the host of both Restaurant Impossible and Dinner Impossible. Friends, it's Robert Irvine. Robert, welcome to the pod again, a second time. (laughs) Um, Thanks for joining us. Listen, if you can't get the technology right, I mean, just <laughs> let me know and I'll help you. I'm kidding. Hi, thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just have to call myself out and, and set the scene for everybody because we were actually scheduled to interview you yesterday. And right as Robert sits down, uh, my internet goes out and I reboot my computer and then my computer decides to update literally every Adobe program uh, all at the same time. So I, I could have actually used your your tactical problem solving skills. Well, speaking of which uh, you have two impossible shows on Food Network right now. And I want to talk first about Dinner Impossible, because this is back after a a long hiatus. What does it feel like to be back doing Dinner Impossible? We started Dinner Impossible 14 years ago, uh, went on a hiatus 11 years ago. And last night, to thundering applause uh, across all social media uh, networks, it was Kind of weird in in a way because, you know, that was my first television show, uh, period. Uh, And that's where I met my wife. So it was a double whammy for me. But uh, amazing to be back and and to see, you know, I think 14 years ago, uh, it was a cult following, right? People didn't know it, but it it was on the cost. And and it was the first show on Food Network, which was really action. And then then the teaching you how to cook uh, then went to Cooking Channel, quote, unquote, and all the adventurous stuff came to Food Network um, many years ago. So so it was weird to 
to start it again because I'm, <laughs> I'm 11 years older um, and, and things I, I would do then we're still doing, but they hurt a little bit more. <laughs> well, it, seem, it seems like such a great fit for you because you're essentially combining um, military and culinary experience. It's basically, you know, if man versus wild, I think an Iron Chef had a baby, it, it would kind of be this show. So it's basically the, the whole show Dinner Impossible, which actually started out, and I don't think you know this, but it was actually called Fit for a King. And it was a license plate on my black BMW. And I used to get the mission originally in the console in the front and said, Robert, your mission today, just like James Bond. <laughs> and it was really cool. Uh, not, it's not any cool now because it is. But um, I would say the simple answer to your question is, hey, listen, I get given a challenge. I know nothing about the challenge. I have no food, no equipment except my knives. Uh, I have two helpers, uh, two chefs that are my chefs. And, um, you know, a, a, a series of hours, a number of hours to complete the task um, and get it done the best I can possibly do. The most we've cooked for in the old season was 6,000 in uh, 17 hours and be having to move it three miles from where I cooked it and serve the first thousand at a certain time. And uh, four hours later, the other 5,000. Uh, and I got to tell you, uh, it, it's not for the faint hearted, for sure. <laughs> so you literally get dropped in, in a location and you have to make it work. And you have no idea, like the, the situation where you're going to be any of that until like the second that that they drop you there? When, when I wrote this show, and this is, and I wrote it um, originally because it was based on a year of my life. What I would do in aircraft carriers with, with, with uh, the White House and all the other things I was doing back then. Um, and I never knew what I was going to do until I got there. So I didn't want to change that. Just like Restaurant Impossible. I don't know the owners. I don't know the stories because I want you to really understand what I actually go through and take that journey with me. And it's much – technology has become so amazing now. When, when you see a camera uh, shot of where we were, for example, in Hawaii, you're seeing it like a cinematographer would see it um, shooting it. And you're literally there on my shoulder, taking the whole journey with me. So it's become a lot more um, real than it was, you know, many years ago, eleven years ago when we stopped. So uh, yeah, it's it's intense. It certainly is. I I can't personally imagine being put into a situation like that. I I am pretty much a a planner. Um, I need to have my ingredients ready, everything mapped out. How do you prepare with with such limited information? And what's your strategy going in? I don't have a strategy, um, and I'll tell you for why. Uh, just like the military, one thing that, that has allowed me to be good at doing what I do is the training I had when I was in the military. Adaptability, um, um, not forming a plan because it changes so frequently, the terrain, the weather. Uh, when, I, when I know that we're doing a dinner impossible and we go to the hotel, and again, I don't know, I get a car, pick me up at whatever time in the morning, they take me to locations. Somebody I don't know gives me a mission. And it's then I start to, to kind of think, what am I going to do? How do I get food? Uh, is the food there? What equipment do we have? Uh, how many hours? Where's the nearest store, if I'm allowed to use a store? What are the weather conditions? 
you know, we've done ice hotels in Quebec City at minus 30 degrees where literally you take a, um, a tomato and in five minutes in that it literally crystallizes. Um, and I've never had those things before. So it really is adapting in the moment, pretty much like we've done in the last year with COVID, right? You, you've got to pivot and change and, and that's the only thing we know how to do. And that's the show. I don't know how David or George, you know, the other guys, or in this case, um, Daryl or, or Shane, or I don't know what they're going to do until something comes out of their mouth. Yeah, I'm going to direct them to tell them what I want, but if I'm not clear in giving what I want from them, instead of getting diced something, I get shredded something, and, and then I go nuts, and then it's my fault because I, didn't, I wasn't clear enough with them. So I'm... Uh, I'm intense. I start to think of what we could do. And then again, wh where am I getting food from? How many people are feeding? What are this time limit? What do we have to cook on? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those things go through your mind. I, I mean, the challenges are, are certainly difficult, but these locations you're talking about, um, really amazing. Do you have a favorite filming location, either from this run or, or previous? No, I, they're also, here's the thing. I, I traveled the world 345 days a year. I've done for the last 12 years. Uh, I go to military bases where you don't even know we have military bases. I was in um, um, Greenland a couple of months ago, about 700 miles from the North Pole, um, our furthest most base, where literally you can't go outside uh, we have 400 personnel up there. You can't go outside without special clothing because it's so cold. You literally, everything falls off. Uh, it literally freezes. Uh, so I'm used to, I hate the cold, by the way. If anybody knows me, then know I hate the cold. Um, but it's a challenge. It, it's really the challenge against me personally. And, th and then it's the producers who are trying to mess me up. And then the terrain and everything else that goes with it. So I don't have a favorite place. I love to cook for anybody in the military. That's my that's my passion. Food is not my number one passion. The military is. And the food is the vehicle that allows me to do what I love, which is be amongst people. Is there a location that they could possibly select that that really truly would make dinner impossible? Yeah, anywhere, anywhere that reacts like um, that takes moisture, extreme heat, extreme cold, um, deserts, and 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 by the way, I've been to all these places. I'm not necessarily haven't cooked in most of the places, but uh, yeah, I don't know what our world is so fragile that no matter where you go on a given day, it could be a hundred and you know twenty six degrees, or it could be minus thirty degrees. It, it, there's that much of a swing, so you know. Do we have equipment? And again, these are all the questions I ask myself when I walk up and somebody says, hey, Robert, today you're going to do this. And I'm like, okay. I don't even hear them after that point. My brain starts to kick in and say, okay, what do I need to do that? How am I going to achieve that? Um, well, I, I want to talk a little bit about your wife and how you met because you kind of alluded to this at, uh, at the beginning of this interview. Uh, you met your wife, Gail, on the show. She is a professional wrestler. Give us the story of, of how you two met and, and fell in love. Wow. 
I'm going to give you the real version. Yes, please. <clears throat> it's kind of funny because Gail was with WWE at that time. She was a Hall of Fame wrestler. I had no clue about wrestling. It wasn't my thing. It never has been until I met Gail. And I went into the Staples Center. I got given the mission by um, Stephanie McMahon and Big Show, who literally I mean, put his hand on my neck. And his hand literally went around my neck. He's that big. When we were in the middle of the, the, the mission, which was create food that pertain to somebody's move, like finishing move, which means, you know, when you knock somebody out, this is what they do. Uh, one was he used to spit green liquid in your face um, and, and all these other things. But there was a piece in the, in the show and, and Miz was being really silly. And Santino Morello was, I asked him to crack eggs and he started cracking eggs with his elbow, which to me was ridiculous. And then they said, oh, we're going to bring this girl in. And it was Gail. And I said, no, I'm not ready for anybody else to come in because I'm still trying to figure out what we're doing. And I screamed, no, I don't want her. And at that point, she's like, oh, she came in a, a little bit later and um, we were very close. I mean, literally very close. And I was teaching her how to cut uh, um, a piece of um, iceberg lettuce or, or a lettuce cup. I can't remember what lettuce it was at the time. but uh, And she literally was, there was no personal space at all. Fast forward, we finished the, the episode and I was going to, to be interviewed with WWE. And as I came down the ramp to be interviewed by them, she was there getting ready to leave for Las Vegas from, from LA. And I managed to sneak a, a kiss on the cheek. And I said, da -da, you know, and, and we conversed for six weeks. And then one, one day I get a text. Oh, I'm working in Wilkes-Barre, Wilkes Bar, that's outside Philadelphia. And I said, Oh, great. Get me a ticket. I'll come and watch what well, she did. And I was really excited. You know, I get to see, you know, Gail wrestle. She put me in a nosebleed session. I, she was like, she was like the pin of a, you know, the, the head of a pin. I couldn't see anything. So we didn't drive to New York city and, and she told me the whole story of how she got added to this show it wasn't supposed to be gail on this show it was another girl who got sick the day before and she was added but she broke into her boss's computer was reading her boss's computer about dinner impossible and said well why am i not on that show i'm the one that cooks i'm the i'm the food network fan i'm the you know all that and he said oh well, let me see if i can get you added and the girl got sick and here it is and here we are now 12 years, 13 years later, married, and that's the history. I, I love it. And I heard that you you planned the entire wedding, aside from Gail choosing her dress. Is it is it fair fair to say that you were the one that, that wanted the fairy tale wedding and, and she didn't care as much about that? She didn't she didn't care, but I wanted to give her the fairy tale wedding because I'm I'm you know, people say to me, Oh, you're so intense, you're mean, you're tough, you're all those adjectives. But I really love chick flicks and girly stuff. I, I it's me that when we bought the house and designed the house and the garden and, and I take care of all that because it's kind of my my thing and uh yeah i'm very particular but she was like yeah just we go to registry office i'm like no nah, i don't think so so yeah i had the horse uh the horse and carriage all, all i said to her was go and get your dress and uh leave everything else to me and and i planned i was the bridezilla <laughs> what uh I, I mean who had to had to deal with with your bridezilla tendencies uh everybody the florist uh michael chiarello marimoto guy and it's so funny because food network they wanted to film the show but then they didn't want to film the show. And then I said, guys, I'm not waiting for you. I'm moving. We're getting married in three months. Uh, and that was February. We got married in, in, uh, on May the 10th. And I hadn't even found a place to go then. You know, we found uh, 
uh, I'd done a dinner uh, with Mondavi at my restaurant, and we seemed to have, you know, wrestlers and Food Network folks. Wrestlers are not foodies, they eat anything. And, you know, it's kind of a weird mix. But I took Gail, I was filming with a guy actually, and we took Gail to see the venue. She fell in love with it, and we ended up getting married there. And, uh, yeah, it was it was one heck of a party. It sounds like it. I mean, you mentioned some of these Food Network stars. They were actually like helping and cooking at, at the wedding. Is that right? Not helping cooking. I I literally had Michael Chiarello do entree. I had Morimoto bring a whole squid. It was some of the best sushi I've ever seen in my life. Guy did my rehearsal dinner, and and those of you know that I am very close with Guy. Is he a good chef? Nah, not really. Kidding. He can cook. <laughs> Um, it did an amazing rehearsal dinner and was my best man at my wedding. And uh, then Gail surprised me by bringing my sister from Scotland. Totally shocked at that. Yeah, it was just when you have people that care about food and they care about you and, and you really enjoy their them people, it just makes for a good time. Actually, this is a fun fact. I don't know if you know this, that your your wedding and honeymoon albums um, still rank among the most popular content on Food Network dot com of all time all these years later and the fans love it uh were you aware of that i knew it was the number one for a long time and i mean we've been nine years we've been married been here 13 years so i thought it kind of fizzled we've had a lot more things happen in the world than robert and getting married <laughs> so I, I would imagine we've been knocked off so one last question about about you and gail who's winning in an arm wrestling contest I, she would always win <laughs> it's not about strength it's about being smart that's true. You just have to go with the flow and yes. Oh, oh, yeah, of course. You beat me. <laughs> uh, smart man. I could have talked to Robert all day about Gail and their wedding, but he has another show on Food Network, and we're going to talk all about that coming up next. Let, let's switch gears to Restaurant Impossible because you're facing a challenge here in, in a completely different way with a lot more emotion involved. You're coming to the aid of failing restaurants with two days, $10,000, a lot of tough love, trying to get them to bounce back. How real are the situations on the show, the drama on the show that we see unfolding? Restaurant Impossible was written four years before it actually came out. I literally wrote the, the show. I have it in my safe, put it into an envelope, sent it to the Writers Guild, registered it with the Writers Guild, and then it came back and I have it still sealed, which is kind of interesting because people say to me, oh, you just copy Gordon Ramsay's show. And I said, no, actually... He copied mine because I have it, you know, date and stamped in time. Restaurant Impossible started because I would get every Sunday, I would get emails from people asking for help before the show started. I wrote the show. It was originally a 22-minute show, not a 42-minute show. And it was really about not people. It was about places and things. And the first episode in New Jersey turned into people and it, it took its own kind of spin at Valari's in New Jersey. And, you know, from that point forward, here we are, we, we're now in season 18 uh, and still going strong. You ask a question of how real it is. And I, and I go back to what I said to you before about Dinner Impossible. I choose not to know the restaurant or the people's story because I really want it to be my emotions, my, my reactions as it actually happens. Because they're much more intense, believable, whichever way you want to put it. When, you, when you're hearing it the first time, you can't replay things. You get one shot at it. So the producers and all the people that pick uh, these, these places, they know the stories. Although it's kind of funny when I get there, 
the stories change. So, so what they've told producers, um, normally about their family, their backup, their monies, and all the things, um, it's a lot worse. Because I really do in the first eight hours and one minute, they hate me literally with a capital H because I'm very intense and I just need the information to be able to formulate a plan. When I drive up to the location, I'm literally scanning the place to see what's around it, what what type of restaurant, what type of residential business, etc., and how are we going to make this place work if it's not worked for eight years and you've made no money. But you're expecting the miracle guy, me, to walk in and change that with a, with a fairy godmother stick, you know, or wand. Uh, it doesn't happen like that. Uh, you fail for a reason. I have to get to the bottom of that reason. Is it food? Is it ambience? Is it leadership? You know, what is it? And all the stories are real with a capital R. Seriously. Uh, and a lot of them are heartbreaking. A veteran of 22 years in the military had post-traumatic stress. My foundation got involved and literally he started yesterday in, in Massachusetts getting help, a two-week intense course that we pay for. I pay for that. And, and the viewers don't know that because I don't need them to know that. There are lots of things that I find out about that the viewer will never know, and we fix. And by fix, I mean get them help and make sure that whatever it is we can do to make their life better from that point, it happens. Uh, it's very emotional. I would never have said to you 13, 14, however many years ago we've been doing this show, I can't even remember, that it, that I would get affected by it. And I was affected by a show that I did with a young man named LJ. He was uh, 12 years old at the time. He's passed away since. And I think you see me break down because my daughter, Annalise, uh, was at the show and I paid for the mortgage because they were kicked, they were literally being kicked out of their house as we were giving the good news of the restaurant being finished. And she just gave me an envelope just before we filmed me and, and said, hey, here. And, what, and I'm like, what is this? It was an eviction notice. I called Mark Summers and I said, listen, I need 10 grand from you. I'm going to give 10 grand. Don't ask questions. Just say yes. True story. We paid off their mortgage payment that was uh, owed six months to give them time to get on the feet. They sold the restaurant. But LJ walked into that restaurant and I'd asked Tom Burry to find me a picture to put on the wall because the service station needed something and it was a last minute, but it had to go with the colors that we'd redone the room with, uh, the restaurant. He put a picture up. There was no curtain on the service station so everybody could see it. LJ literally came in in a wheelchair, jumped out of the wheelchair when he saw the picture. Little did I know that it was a picture that he painted at a Make-A-Wish Foundation gathering and I lost it. I, you know, it was... Uh, and I still, in my live show that we travel the globe with, there's a piece of LJ in there. He passed away three years ago. And every time I talk or I look at this, I always lose it in the show. It's real. They're real. I'm real. They're emotional stories. I mean, I'm, I'm getting emotional just like listening to, to you talk about it. And you can hear in your voice, um, you know, how much, you know, these stories mean to you. How much are you, you know, how much are you keeping up with with all of these different, you know, people and stories that you've helped on the show? So I keep in touch. This will shock you. I keep in touch with everybody we've ever done a show with. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a rule. I, I talk to six, six of those folks every week. And I just keep going to like, uh, in fact, just before I get on this, Lou Perello, I was just talking to him and we've been to his, we did his restaurant. I think four years ago, and then went to revisit, to reopen back in business. I talk to these folks all the time. And I, I the reason I do that is not only because they've really made a, a personal connection with me, but also because when I do the shows that are new, I want 
somebody that's been through it to talk to the new Restaurant Impossible family members. And that's what they are. They're a big family. We are a big family. And I utilized them last night, yesterday, uh, had Denny, uh, Denny Tornatori come up from Orlando to feed our crew. And we did his restaurant. He was uh, one of the ambush, one of the ambush shows that we did. And he fed the crew yesterday. He's gone on wow. to not only pay his debt, also open a store next to it. Again, just they're doing amazing things. And if you listen, you can be successful. It's only when they go back to their old habits that they fail. I, I want to ask you about the the ambush style because that was that was like an early part of the show and where they, they didn't even know you were coming. You just like show up and, and you're ready to to like to to fix things up. How how did how did that go and how did it change to what we see now? It was so that was really season 11, 12, 13 where we literally just show up and it was it was a convoy. We had an RV with all the sound equipment in it, Tom with the trucks and the generators and all these things. And it was so difficult to do it because if I needed to change electrical works or I needed to take out a wall which I did numerous times, um you know, I got in trouble for it because we need planning permission or we need this or we need this. Uh, it was it was a good thing. People had no idea. And Danny was one of them. I showed up and he he couldn't stop swearing. He was like bleep, bleep. I mean, we, it was like 30 <laughs> minutes of bleeping. It was great. But I felt I felt that I really didn't have enough time with them because it was so rushed. And And remember, when they ambush somebody and they say, well, I don't want you to do it today i'm like no we're doing it now and they're like well i'm not ready i'm not <laughs> this is your chance so i would have to wait you know the initial shock of oh robert remains here then they would contemplate do they want it done today i'm like there is no there's no tomorrow if you're not doing it today we're we're out of here because i've got to create a show and there was one we did and i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now but she talked till four o'clock in the afternoon of day one to decide because it was disgusting. It was filthy. There were, it was roach infested. The whole nine yards and she didn't want to be shown on TV. I said, hey, this is it. It's happening. And she literally talked till four o'clock in the afternoon, which put us behind. And before we opened, a car had hit a main, a main electrical wire and we almost didn't open. So uh, the show has, a, has a, a life of its own and the personalities just keep coming. Well, little did we know uh, this past year, every food establishment would, would es- essentially be facing circumstances, you know, fit for an episode of this show. What have you seen in, in the restaurant industry and any words of wisdom for some struggling restaurants that might be listening out there? Well, you know that we've seen it all. Literally, we were filming Revisit in State College, Pennsylvania, when we had to shut down. I was getting emails and, uh, I mean, 3,000 plus emails of help. What do we do? And I called Courtney, uh, Courtney White, and said, hey, we need to be doing something. I, they need help. Courtney's an angel to me. She really is. She's my boss, but she's also an angel in disguise because she allowed, with all the, all the, the, the COVID protocols and all that, we had two buses six people on each bus and i called the folks and said hey listen i'm doing this do you want to be part of it or you're scared and i could understand if they said no they got 12 people and we got six on each bus and we started going to the restaurant and possibly family members that were closed in the different states to help them put protocols and systems in place to the customer or the consumer confidence was coming back and they would come to the carryouts or takeouts or uh, curbside, et cetera, et cetera. So from the July 4th weekend, all the way up until Christmas, December the 
21st, I think it was. I think we did 39 shows. And, and again, all, all working with that while doing that with the NAH CDC and um, National Restaurant Association, I came up with a, a, a product called Virus Safe Pro, which was an app that we could literally put consumer confidence back into, into people. It was taken by the National Restaurant Association as part of their, I sold it to them and give them money to charity. And um, yeah, and, and that's how we started. But there's one thing I, I, and this sounds kind of sucky up a little bit, but I'm going to tell you the truth. I think the Food Network led the way. We were the first out helping people. And that's why it's called the Food Network. That's why we have so many loyal fans because they know what we do and they know what Food Network stands for. I was very proud when Courtney said, hey, listen, if you want to do it, we're going to back you. Let's do it. Let's make sure we can be as safe as possible. And I just hope we can get volunteers back at some point because it's hard. <laughs> we got camera guys cleaning floors. We got sound guys cleaning toilet. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. The team that I have, I'm the face of that team because I'm on TV, and but it's the team behind the scenes that went out on those buses and, and are still doing it now that have made you know, what I call America reopen. You've hit all of it. I think, you know, Food Network is so in touch with the fans, with, with the restaurant industry, as are you. And, and kind of pivoting off of that, you really are in touch with, you know, the people that you've helped, as we've heard you talk about, and also with your your fans. Uh, you're very active on Twitter and in social media in general. Why is it so important to you to take that time to respond and connect with the people who not only are impacted by your shows, but just watch your shows? It's funny. You'll know it's me. Because there's no full stops, there's no punctuation. It's 140 <laughs> characters of one word, a sentence, and, it, and you've got to read it and figure it out. But and that's why people know it's me. Uh, it's funny because if it, if there's ever a, a, a tweet or something on social media that's punctuated, they know it's not me. So yeah, I'm very I'm very in tune with that because I believe when you reach out to somebody, I answer all my own Twitter, period. Because I believe the connection you have, and, you, and you've seen that. I do live tweeting every week, and we give away you know three to $5,000 in food gift cards and protein bars and all those other things. But it's a connection that I have, and I know everybody I talk to on that social media platform. I know everyone. I know the kids. I know their and it also gives us an advantage, I think. So we have a little girl who uh, she's 18 years old, who has angel syndrome. She pledged to walk a thousand miles and can't walk or very little for another charity, a thousand miles in 2021. And we started to support her through that. Autism is the month of April. And I have hundreds of autistic families that watch the show. And they tell me every week how much of a difference it makes to their family. And when you read these things, and it sounds like I'm a real like, I'm going to cry in a minute but because I get that emotional with these folks because I know their stories when they've got no food yet that they'll go and buy a protein bar because they know it gives somebody else money and we've done a thousand things like that and that's why it's so important to me to stay connected to the people that watch our shows we are one of the best teams on the planet for keeping in touch with our viewers and through them telling us we can communicate with the network and communicate with with folks of what they need, what they what they think they need, especially as this last year has been so horrific with with job losses and, and no money and and you know kids staying at home and have to be taught. You know, we have a whole new respect for garbage men, uh, shop shop tenants, uh, filling shelves, doctors, nurses, firefighters. You know, we have a whole new respect of 
those people that, that did something and still do something throughout this, this year of a pandemic. Food Network was that light, that guiding light of, of giving you something positive to watch when everybody was feeling down. And, and that's why I'm, I'm so proud to be part of it. And that's not a suck up. That's just reality. We've watched people in the darkest days come out. And, and I, I said this earlier on when I was on a, a telecast this morning, there's a friend of mine. His name is, uh, he's a Sergeant Major of the Army, uh, Michael Grinston. He said, you know what? This is my squad. Get to know your people, right? Well, now I've got 4 million people that I talk to every week on numerous times. And when they're feeling down, we give them hope. And when somebody else is down, they give them hope and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and I think that's what Food Network and Discovery is. It's hope. And when you take that hope and you can give something, even if it's for two hours, an hour, 45 minutes, that hope in somebody else's life gets them up the next morning to do something else. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really well said. It's very clear, you know, how connected you are, how important all of that is to you. But I do want to talk about another aspect of your life that is clearly um, something that you hold very dear, and that is your fitness. And I know people are obsessed with hearing about this. Um, so. How how do you manage to keep up with the food and the exercise when you're traveling, you know, how many days a year for this and and still uh, maintain uh, your 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 physique? Well, num number one, um, Gail pushes me. Sometimes I feel like I don't want to go work out. She's like, you feel much better if you do. Listen, the military, the military, I was in the military and, and fitness has always been a big part. Obviously, I married Gail. She's a fitness freak as it is, but I, I love working out. I, you know, I'm working out when we travel with 20, 22 year old kids, male and female in the military that we ask to do their job every day. And, and they're, you know, okay, well, we want to work out with you. 500 Marines, you know, they just want to kill you because, <laughs> because they know you like fitness. But yeah, I, I just love that. I, I love that we get up and I get that hour and a half for me because I like to do 30 minutes warm up and then I do my hour. But that's my time. Escapism. Is it? Is it every single day? Every day. Yeah. Unless I'm on a, a um, you know, a really long flight, uh, we'll be going to Abu Dhabi, June, then we go to, to Korea. And normally I'll either work out before I get on a plane or I'll do push-ups and sit-ups on that long haul flight. Like in the aisle? Like where are you doing? In, in the, in the, um, what I'm blessed with, Food Network is all around the world. So no matter whether we, I was on a flight with Air Turkey, um, literally, and the, the flight attendants knew I was. They allowed me to do my sit-ups and push-ups in the galley. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always people – you can't have excuses for not working out or doing something because we do it in hotel rooms. We do it on planes, you know, wherever it is. Um, I, I, need to, I need to put that, that little uh, last piece of advice on um... – on repeat for myself um, because I, I always seem to find an excuse. Okay, I'm going to throw it back at you. You get okay. up, you get up and clean your teeth every day, right? Right. You you brush your hair, and I say this to young kids all the time. I want you to do me one favor. I want you to make your bed in the morning, and they look at me like I'm not making my debt in my bed, <laughs> and and then I'll say why because it gives you an achievement. The first achievement you have in a day is making your bed, and if you listen to the top Fortune 500 leaders in our world. They all made the bed as kids because it was an achievement. And that's what I'm going to say to you. You get up and you you achieve something by, you know, putting clothes on, doing your hair. You have mm -hmm. to make it a priority because if you don't, 
just like everything else, it'll become the older you get, the slower will become, and you won't prioritize things. So prioritize it. I got a pep talk. <laughs> I got I got like the the emotional, you know, like plea, not the the tough love. So I, I appreciate you going easy on me. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun. Um, but before I let you go, I'm going to ask you one last question that we asked to all of our guests here on Food Network Obsessed, and I'm curious for your answer because I know you had said earlier that you know food is not your your number one, you know, joy or priority or anything like that. So what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert. So breakfast for me would always be oatmeal and fruit because mm-hmm. I eat that every day because it's a slow-burning carbohydrate. It takes two hours so I can work out and not feel hungry or get lightheaded. Then I'm normally, I normally follow that with eggs and, and uh, egg white omelets or, or uh, poached eggs. Uh, lunch would always be a tuna salad sandwich made with hummus instead of mayonnaise. I like that on toasted bread. Dinner would be roast chicken and mashed potatoes. I'm not saying healthy because there's a pound and a half of butter in the mashed potatoes. <laughs> That's all right. I think everything else you just named was healthy. So I think. And then a snack. I'm a big believer in, um, or dessert, I should say. I'm a big believer that every meal should end in dessert because our bodies have become so accustomed to when we grow up. So, you know, you can't have dessert unless you finish this. So in the morning, it's normally for me, it will be a toast and jelly. Lunch, it will be a square of chocolate or a, a rice pudding, a cup of rice pudding. Dinner, right now, it's Girl Scout cookies. I love chocolate. I'm not a, I don't like drink chocolate milk or I love coffee occasionally, but I don't eat anything with coffee in it. So I won't eat tiramisu. I won't, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not that guy. It's kind of weird when you say, well, you drink coffee, but you don't like anything with coffee in it. So you pretty much eat pretty healthy most of the time. And then you, but you kind of indulge with that dessert after every meal. Yep. And I believe that unlike most people, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I eat every two and a half hours. So for me, the protein source, whatever that is, is the size of a deck of cards. And the carbohydrates are always the size, not the the, the finger mouse here, but the old mouse that show my age, but uh, the old mouse. So, so you always have a deck of cars and a mouse in protein and carbohydrates seven to eight times a day. Uh, well, I, I could go on forever asking you uh, more questions and, and perhaps we will, uh, we'll have to do that at another time, but we appreciate you uh, setting aside this time for us a second day in a row. And uh, it was so much fun talking to you and, and best of luck uh, with all the new shows. Thank you so much. Now, what are you going to do tomorrow morning? I'm going to, I'm going to get up and work out. There you go. <laughs> Such a fantastic conversation with Robert. And uh, I don't know whether I want to pump some iron right now or maybe start a restaurant. Uh, Either way, I do know I will be tuning in to the new episodes of Restaurant Impossible on Thursdays at 9, 8 Central and Dinner Impossible right afterwards at 10, 9 Central on Food Network. And you can also stream on Discovery+. Plus. As always, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on our platforms if you aren't already so you don't miss a single guest. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you would rate and review. I do read all of them. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you foodies next Friday on Food Network Obsessed. 